that you are involved and then you are the credibility. They might not know who Grace Cup Church is, but they might know who you are. You're their mate. And because of you, they might give us a second glance. And uh, even if they're not involved or interested in Grace Cup, man, they need to hear from Jesus, right? And so use these opportunities. Uh, just simply get it on your socials and let people see what you're doing. Might come up in conversation and all of a sudden it's so easy to talk about what someone is asking you about instead of to broach the conversation and say, can I tell you about something I've been doing? You should do that anyway, but it's easier when they ask. So, I need two volunteers, please. One volunteer. No, I just need one chair. Thank you. Thanks for being considerate. All right. You're, uh, Stephen is the guy I can always trust. Uh, this is a great volunteer. Okay. So, this is going to be fun and games. All right. So, Stephen, you can stand behind the chair. Uh, what's your name? Andrew, you can stand over there. Just stand over there a little bit. <laughs> stand that side, the edge of the carpet. Alrighty. Oh, I forgot to tell you that uh, if you don't have your book, you see Andrew got up, got his book, he's ready to write. If you don't have your book, you can still talk to Wes and Ulrika. I think we have how many? We're down to about 14 or 13 books left. So if you still want to grab one, you're more than welcome. You can chat with them uh, after the meeting and you can still join an identity group. They'll tell you which one is in your area or which one might suit you. Otherwise, jump on gracecup.coza and uh, all the info is there. I think we're every night of the week except Monday and Saturday, something like that. So it's not hard. And uh, there is a Saturday actually. So we've got Sunday. It's just Monday that we don't have a group. We've got 16 groups meeting, uh, 17 groups meeting around the city and you can be part of it. So um, make the most of it. Sundays are great. But uh, when you look in your manuals, you'll see how much more happens during the week. Especially able to engage on people, uh, engage with people on a personal uh, basis is way better. So let's have a look. So in the heart of every man and woman is a throne. Each one of us in our hearts have a throne. The question is, who will sit on the throne in your heart? Will it be King I? Or will it be King Jesus? And so, when it's King I, come sit on your throne, Mr. Mr. I. We all want to sit on a throne. It can be occupied not by the King and I, but the King I. And we love to sit on our thrones. We love to make our choices. We love to be the captains of our own destiny. We love to decide where our lives should go. But sometimes, for some of us, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and we begin to want to make room for Jesus, the greatest King, to sit on the throne of our heart. And so you can sit, stand behind the throne. You can welcome Jesus to come and sit on the throne of your hearts. There we go. And that's a beautiful thing. When Jesus takes over the kingship, the sovereignty of our lives. The truth is, sometimes that's our wish, but not our practice. And sometimes what happens, you can stand up again, and you can sit on your throne. Sometimes what happens, we say, oh Jesus, I would like you to be the Lord of my 
my, most of my life. So if you just scoot over a little bit, Steve. There we go. We say, please be welcome onto the throne of my life, Jesus, but you can only have that much. And truth be told, it happens every time we do this. The last time I did this, we were preaching in a church in France, and they had a whole bunch of Ukrainian refugees in the meetings. So I preached in English, it was translated into French, which was then translated into Russian. So you can imagine how this whole lot worked. And Stephen would have been a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. It was a great party. And so we invite Jesus into our lives, but we're not ready to relinquish the lordship of our life. And so there's this tussle, there's this wrestle. The more we give up, the more nervous we feel because it feels like we're going to fall off the edge. And then we respond by going back and Jesus almost gets squeezed out of our lives. Fortunately, fortunately, I don't get to determine whether, whether Jesus is the king or not. Isn't that amazing? You can close your eyes, does it cause the sun to no longer exist? You can hold your breath, does it cause air to no longer be a thing? You can jump in the air, does it, cause, does it stop gravity pushing you onto terra firma? No, it doesn't. And no matter what's in our hearts, it doesn't change the position of who Jesus is. And so this is this tussle. And sometimes we're trying to squeeze other things into our lives as well. Maybe a wife or a family or a job or something comes along. And then the job wants to get some space. What happens to Jesus along the way? You understand my points? I would ask you, thank you, James. You can put the chair down. I would like to ask you this morning, who is the Lord on the throne of your heart? There's only room for one. There's only room for one. It'll either be King I or it will be King Jesus. And as you see, timeshare is a bad idea. (laughs) So welcome to episode three of our identity series. Today we're going to be speaking about I am his servant. And He is my Master. The first week we spoke about the identity gap. We said there's a difference between what I believe and His truth. And those two need to align together. Last week Wes preached about I am His child. And Wes taught us that that this means that the Father loves me unconditionally. The Father embraces me. The Father forgives me. And the Father transforms me. Today on page 8 of your manual, you can open there and you can write, I am a servant, on the top of page 8, and you can also continue to write, He is my master. The best part is that it speaks about who I am, but it also speaks about who He is. And I'm a servant in relation to the fact that He is my master. I am the owner of the throne. But as we began with Stephen stood behind the throne and Jesus sits on the throne. I am the servant. He is the master. John the Baptist, remember he was called by God to go ahead of Jesus and to announce the call for repentance and and uh, submission to Jesus' lordship. You might remember he, come, he came out the desert. I, I still wonder what people were thinking. He looked like a, like a rough kind of living guy. He was not cultured in any way. He wasn't suited for the city. 
And God sends this, this guy into the midst of people to proclaim the way. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus began to minister, John the Baptist said in John 3 verse 30, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the story of the throne. NIV says he must become greater and I must become less. The message puts it this way. This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center while I slip off into the sidelines. This is probably the most radically countercultural message and idea that we can think of. As you wrote down, I am a servant. I wonder what you thought. I wonder what went through your mind or your hearts. You said, I've come to church and you're saying I'm a servant. Did it, did it flow easily when you wrote it or when you thought it? Sometimes it's a bit grudging, isn't it? Jesus, really? You want, to give, you want me to give what up? The beautiful thing, remember, is that Jesus gave up his life willingly to the Father. And so he proved, he, paid, he made the example. He asks of us nothing that the Father hasn't asked of him, which he offered. Our culture celebrates our rights to self-actualization. Do whatever you like to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, we're told these days. Our right to self-determination. Never mind whether who's in charge of who. I have the right to determine my own outcomes. In fact, we're told that we should just let me do me, right? I have spoken about that from time to time. The human heart desires independence. It's like... It's, it's, we want to be the master of our own destiny. The driving factor with the Tower of Babel back in the Old Testament was that mankind should no longer wander around in small groups, but make a name for themselves, controlling their environment, constantly tra- striving for a higher layer of hierarchy over their, na- over their neighbors. They wanted to pull together a city with a tower so that no one would push them around. They wouldn't be uh, subject to... Uh, 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 food resources and weather and and cultural uh, uh, neighbors and so on. They wanted to be able to uh, stamp their own identity on that part of the world and have no one tell them what they should do. In the in opposition to God saying, "I will send you out," and the heart of Babel is, "I want to be in charge of myself." Maybe you would agree with me if you're honest enough this morning. We also don't want to be told what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. I remember nearly getting into a fist fight with the, with the guy who became my best friend. He, he one day said to me, oh, we were talking about sport and he was engaged in sport. He said to me, you should do dot, dot, dot. I said, hey, who do you think you are? I mean, how silly. Two teenagers on the playing ground. Just one saying you should and the other one getting so offended. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to tell others what to do, right? In my home, if everyone just said exactly what I thought would be wonderful, don't you agree? (laughs) In this church, if everyone just said what I said, it would be wonderful, right? Different. Come on, I'm hoping for a boat here. How about if everyone did what you said? We want to be on top of the pile. And the word servant seems like the bottom of the pile. 
And yet, when we decide to follow Jesus, and we get adopted, as we heard last week, into the greatest family on, on earth, one of our new identities is that of servants. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, a key leader in, in uh, the early church, at least ten times in the Bible, refers to himself as a servant of Christ. You could argue that this was the fanciest guy in the New Testament, the most important guy in the New Testament, because a lot of what we know as Christians today comes from him. And yet he chooses the place, not, forgive me, front page of the Joy magazine, not the place of popularity and man's acclaim. He chooses the place of servant. In Romans 1 verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3 verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. Jesus himself, the king, the master, the creator, the lord of everything we know, Emphasized that he too came to serve. Remember, instead of riding on a fancy white stallion, he came into Jerusalem humble, meek and lowly, riding on the back of the colt of a donkey. Remember when Jesus was calling his disciples, <laughs> uh, James and John's mom, she sidled up to Jesus one day. She said, Hey, Jesus. Maybe she invited me to tea. Can I just get five minutes with you, please? I've got something really important I need to ask you. Goes on to say, when you come into your kingdom, won't you grant it that my boy Johnny, can he sit on your right hand? And my boy James, oh, he's actually the clever one. Can he sit at your left hand? That'll be fabulous. Can you understand the thinking? Oh, Jesus, when you step, when you become the king the, and everyone notices, then can't you just have, you know, the, the hand of power is the right-hand side. And the second in charge can be on the left. You know, he'll, get every, he'll keep the records and make sure everyone knows what's happening. You imagine what the other ten disciples thought when they heard about John's mom asking for positions of privilege. Who do you think you are? I'm actually way cleverer than you are anyway. And I helped you last week, you better help me this week. We buy, it's natural, it's built into us somehow that we want to be on the top and not on the bottom. That's why Christianity is so countercultural, and Jesus confused the world the way he came. Matthew chapter 26, uh, Matthew 20 verse 26. Jesus replies, he says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first um, first must be your slave. <laughs> Slavery. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This would have been the most radical language ever spoken, never mind by a rabbi, a teacher, but how about someone calling himself the king of the Jews, the, the, the creator of all things? He came to lay his life down for us, and if we want to follow him, then we too must be willing to serve. 
It's not a punishment, it's a privilege. Remember this next picture we began with on, on week one. We said there are two circles. The first circle is what uh, God knows is the truth. The third circle, uh, sorry, the second circle is what God sees. The third circle is what I believe. No, it's not the truth, but it's I believe. We spoke a lot about that. And where those two overlap is where I believe in the truth that God has put in place. And those two circles need to come together that the space that's occupied by number one there gets bigger and bigger. And the, the space that I believe stuff that God hasn't said is true minimizes. In my circle, greatness looks like being in charge, being in control and having no one to tell me what to do. But in Jesus' circle, it's the complete opposite. Greatness is being a servant. And God wants to transform my identity by moving my circle closer to his circle. It's an amazing privilege to be a servant of God. And as a servant of God, I have access to the master's plans, his protection, his provision, and his praise. And we'll look at those four for the time that I have remaining. So first of all, I have access to God's plan. One of the most quoted passages of the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Yes? <laughs> I wonder if I, had to be, if I had to be tough and say to you, quote me the rest of the chapter, please. Or do you even know where Jeremiah is? Because most people have heard about Jeremiah 29, 11. But we're not sure where Jeremiah is in the Bible. Because we heard people talk about it. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> Just poking and asking us to think a little bit, right? Yeah? The verse before that says that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Why don't we know that one as much as all the plans God has? Because can I tell you, His plans only come to pass when I seek Him. Yeah? Our Master leads us and He Guys, let's just think this through. If I'm the servant and he's the master, have you ever been to one of those fancy restaurants? One of those ones with like real linen tablecloths. Hey? And napkins that they launder, not just throw away when you're done. Maybe some silverware on the table. Hey? And there's always like 13 waiters. You know, there's one guy that offers you the drinks, there's another guy that comes with the menu. You know, they don't just say, oh, you know, my name's Craig, I'll be your servant this evening. Hey? And there's always this guy that hovers around that stands in the background. Hey, waiting. You wonder what on earth. Yeah? I mean, the rich, fancy people used to have ladies in waiting, the ladies. Hey? Ladies in waiting. Imagine that being your job. What's your job now? I wait. <laughs> and all the other village girls are like, oh, I don't know. Susan got to be a lady in waiting. If only we'd been so privileged. You see, when I'm a servant, I belong to my master. It's dangerous language today. We don't like this language. You mean I belong? I don't belong to you. These days we even have problems in our weddings. My father must give me away. Like he's the, my dad is giving me to another guy. A guy does not own me. Forgive me if I'm standing on the terms. I'm not giving you a verdict. I'm just saying it's in our hearts. I'm not saying that either of the two guys get to own you. I'm just prodding. Because <laughs> uh, Jesus, I, I'm yours, but I'm, I'm in charge. 
The story of Jesus' birth has this for a change of plans. Mary, possibly a teenage girl, engaged to be married. Not yet married. Suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her about God's most remarkable plan. The most remarkable plan. Even more remarkable than the flood when there wasn't rain. Angel comes to him and says, and comes to her and says, you will have a baby. I'm sure she knew the mechanics, how this works. He says, no, 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 the Holy Spirit. <laughs> can you, I mean, how do you listen to this? We've heard it for 2,000 years. Over and over again, we can miss like it becomes, oh well. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and that's how you'll fall pregnant. And you have to give him a name, Jesus. <laughs> you'll give birth to the Son of God and He will reign forever. I don't know. If I just came along and said, here's a grand, like here's a thousand bucks, Aruka, I think I'd probably get more response than if <laughs> we spoke about this immaculate conception. Yeah? I would love to have known the look on Mary's face. What was going on in her head? She replies like this in Luke chapter 1 verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. One of the other translations says, Let it be to me as you say. I want to say to you this morning, if you're feeling far from God, it's maybe because we haven't said this verse to Him enough. Or at all. Maybe you're His child. Maybe you're born again. Or maybe you're not. You're feeling distant from Him. And it's maybe because you think it's a partnership. You suggest and I'll agree or not. No, no, no. It's servant and master relationship. Let it be to me as you say. Most powerful words. Imagine Mary. (laughs) She didn't fully understand. She didn't know what was going on really. She didn't even understand. I mean, just the fact that an angel appeared to her must have been pretty exciting. Somehow she has the presence of mind to say, I'm your servant. And she became the mother of Jesus. But her response to God is, I am your servant. Some people today venerate Mary, mother of Jesus. Some people have conferred on her spiritual status that the Bible doesn't. We know that Jesus had other half-brothers. Mary had other children. Yeah? And Mary could have taken that position for herself. And yet she chose the position of servant to the master of the world. You know the cool thing about knowing his plans for my life is that it brings relief and it brings joy. <laughs> Why relief? I don't know about you, when, when, when I became a husband, I suddenly realized, my goodness, I'm responsible for somebody else. I better have two clues to them together, Right? Then when I had, when, when Colette was pregnant for the first time, we were so excited we were going to have kids. And then suddenly I realized, man, they're going to be a little bit like me. That's trouble. And suddenly the pressure of, of being responsible for other living, breathing human beings bent quite hard on my shoulders. And I've been pretending ever since. You guys laugh because you're doing the same. Right? 
It brings great relief because I don't have to be in charge of the plan for my life. There's someone way better at it. Someone who knows, not thinks. Someone who has a clue about my life. It brings relief that is not all up to me. And then it brings joy because when I discover that being a servant to the ultimate master is what I've been designed for. (laughs) All of a sudden I make sense. When I do what I was built for, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Suddenly, (laughs) I fit. It brings joy when I'm doing what He's made me for. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to to me be fulfilled. Secondly, I have access to His protection. I have access to His plans because I'm now part of His grand scheme. Secondly, I have access to His protection. The greatest human king in the whole scriptures, the whole of the Bible, is King David. And he was the greatest uh, king of, of Israel. And during his reign, he expanded the borders of Israel to its greatest extent. He conquered many kings and expanded the territory. And you could say that as a warrior king, he was strong and invisible. And invincible. But he was also the writer of the Psalms. Most of them. And he wrote these worship songs to God. One sounds a little like this, Psalm 23 verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I wonder how hungry you would feel when you your enemies gnashing right in front of you. In the presence of my enemies, he Prepares a feast for me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This guy who had the the uh, the armies of Israel behind him, the the most strategic military force. In fact, in other parts, he said other great warriors came and attached themselves to his fighting force. He had an honor guard, and yet he's also able to write like this in Psalm thirty-two, verse seven: "You." are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Not my ADT armed response. Not my burglar bars on the front door. Not my rabid Rottweiler in the front lawn. Not my moat and crocodiles and landmines and and, and, um, life insurance. And those things are important. That's not what I put my faith in. When I put my head on my pillow at night, you surround me with songs of deliverance. Because I am His servant, I have access to His plans and His protection. Number three, I have access to His provision. (laughs) I have access to His provision. You know, in the olden days, the concept of slave and servant were quite close together. And in fact, even a servant after many years could become uh, uh, freed. He could be, uh, because of this, the master's uh, good graces, he could be given his freedom and he could still elect to remain part of the household. It, he would be called a bond servant because not only was he rightfully a possession of the master, but he had given himself back to the family when he could have left. It's a beautiful picture. 
You see, rightfully, Jesus is the king of all things. Rightfully, he is my master. And yet he allows me to choose to follow him as well. Isn't that beautiful? He's my master and I've given myself to him to be my master. I'm twice his servant and his son, etc., etc. And if I'm his servant, then he's responsible for me. How profound is that? We talk about, <laughs> you know, some of us are, are responsible, some of us are always responsible. Every time something goes wrong, we're responsible. God is responsible for me. We think the, the servant should be responsible to the master, right? But if I belong to him, then it's his role to provide for me. Roof over my head, food, he, he must keep me going. Otherwise, I can't serve him. Correct? And so I have access to his provision. It's amazing. He calls the disciples to follow him and they leave what they're doing and they follow him. Right? Some of them, like Peter and Andrew, left the family business. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Others, like Matthew, left lucrative careers. He was possibly one of the richest of the disciples. I wonder what their thoughts were around financial provision when they made those decisions. When you chose to follow Jesus, I don't think we uh, immediately thought, oh, I'm going to have to give up my job. I'm going to have to give up my home. But can I say we should be willing to offer those to Him? Jesus, if this isn't the job that you have for me, I willingly let it go and give me another one. Because you, the Master, provides for the servant. The job of the servant is to serve. The job of the Master is to look after. Isn't that amazing? We, we, we tend to have it the other way around, right? And yet Jesus treats those disciples, those early followers of Jesus, so well. He multiplies the loaves and fish on two different occasions when they were short of food. He provides money for taxes by telling Peter to go fishing. In the, in the mouth of the fish, you'll find the coin. Go and pay your taxes. Isn't that amazing? Now that's not an excuse. The Bible doesn't say, gentlemen, you can go fishing. <laughs> he calms the storm when they thought they were going to drown. He provides forgiveness when they messed up. Our master owns it all. He is so generous. I have access to his provision. He knows what I need. When I pull up at the petrol station, he doesn't ask, is it 97 or 95 octane? He doesn't put diesel in the petrol car. He knows exactly what I need. He provides for me every step of the way. My master Owns it all. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and drink, or even about your body. How about that this morning? Don't worry about this body. What you will wear. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you yeah. as well. In 2015, we felt as a family, God challenged us to take our kids overseas. We had a ministry trip to do. And for the first time, our kids had always stayed at home. They'd come with us to the city because that's cheap. They'd just sit in the back seat and off we go. They'd never been overseas. And we felt that God was challenging us to take our family with us. I think it was a four or five week trip. And we sat down as a family and we, we discussed 
And everyone in the family, all four of us, felt that this was what God was saying. Expensive to travel as a family. We don't, we've never done that before. Years ago, a friend, a friend said to me that he was part of a group of people that went skiing um, overseas every second year. He said, you guys should join us, Craig. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. If I'm going to have faith for a trip overseas, it'll have something to do with ministry. Thank you. And can I just say, I have gone skiing <laughs> because the Lord put me in a place. And so we decided that we would do this. For a year, we stopped eating takeaways. For a year, we shrunk our budget. Every time we were away from our home, we put it on Airbnb. We had strangers sleeping in our beds. We did every single thing we knew how to do to respond to the challenge of the Lord. We said to time, Jamie, you guys can come where the family will trust God, but you guys need to trust God for the pocket money and we gave them an amount. We'll trust together for the trip, but you guys need to trust God for the pocket money. For some reason, God was kind to tie and the money came through. It was about a week before the trip. And Jamie still had just, just a couple of rand in her hands. I remember her stressing, not sleeping at night, saying, what am I going to do? You know as a mom and a dad what you would do, right? Yeah. You would have made a plan somehow. Sold something, cashed something in, who knows, but for your kids. We felt God saying no. Cancel prayer. I think a day or two before we left, some person who would never have thought came with an envelope the exact right amount of money. Just for family. Not for our family, for Jamie Mayer. Not for the mayor, for Jamie Mayer. You see, as a servant of my master, I have access to his provision. I can tell you story after story, but my time is that fourthly, I have access to his praise. I have access to his praise. I started talking about Paul who decided he would be a servant of Christ and became a major part of his identity. He began as a persecutor of Christians. He tortured them. He put them in jail. He killed them. And on the road to Damascus, God intervenes in his life. You may have read the story. He knocks him over. after He's blind for three days. Then God gives him back his sight. And in Acts chapter 26, talking about that day, he says in verse 16, telling others of the story, he said, God said to me, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have been, what you have seen and will see of me. Right up front, Paul owns the fact that he's appointed as a servant. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, The time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. Many of us, if you've read this passage, you know the story of those that were given bags of gold. And the two that produced, served their master 
honorably produce double. The master commends them and he says, well done, good and faithful servants. The beauty, the incredible truth that as a servant of the master, I have access to his praise. That one day when I stand before him, he will usher me into heaven. Saying, well done. That even in the interim, like I read of Paul, there is an, in store for me a crown of righteousness. I don't spend my time on earth trying to measure up to his favor. I don't have to sit for monthly KPA meetings where, where he assesses my performance yeah. and says, what kind of a servant have you been this month, Craig? Are you better or worse than last month? Where is your trajectory? Will you get a bonus in, in December? No. There is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Master, the Lord, the righteous judge will award for me 